today if you have any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. And thank you all uh, for coming this afternoon, <clears throat> this afternoon to this session of Grand Rounds. Um, Deb Hastings, I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education, and in welcoming you here, I also want to welcome folks who are joining us um, uh, from their home computers. Um, this session is being web-streamed and it is being recorded as well. Today's presentation is entitled Prescribing Opioids for Chronic Pain, Risk Mitigation Strategies, obviously a very important topic. Our presenters are three of our nurse practitioners from our pain clinic, Bridget Meter, Susan DeStasio, and Colleen Olson. At the conclusion of this presentation, you should be able to use appropriate screening tools to identify patients either with or at risk for substance abuse disorder, describe the use of data from prescription drug monitoring programs, describe use of urine drug testing, and identify aberrant drug-related behaviors. For those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you may email them to Judy Langhans, who will be monitoring her email, and she will share the questions uh, with our speakers at the end of the presentation. And her email is judith.m, as in May, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Also, for folks viewing online, please email Judy within an hour of the completion of the presentation. Let her know that you did participate. She will need your name, degree, and zip code. We want you to know that neither our speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. And I think Colleen is up first. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm Colleen Olson. I'm a nurse practitioner in the pain um, clinic. Oh, sorry. I'm uh, Colleen Olson. I'm a nurse practitioner in the pain clinic, and um, I'm going to start. And I don't know why it's not advancing. Use that instead. I already look better. <laughs> okay. Yay. No. <laughs> no. Okay. It's okay.
Did it go? Yay! Oh. Okay. I'm going to talk about the Prescription Database Monitoring Program, uh, and what is it? And it is a statewide electronic database collecting data on substances dispensed within the state, <coughs> excuse me, schedules two through four. It's, the DEA is not involved, and it's not a centralized um, program. Each state runs their own. Uh, currently, 49 states, uh, the District of Columbia and Guam have uh, PDMPs and all have uh, a PDMP that's operational. I think Missouri is the only state that doesn't have one. Um, generally, the idea behind the PDMP is to give information between prescribers, healthcare uh, insurance providers, state health departments, law enforcement, and pharmacies information about the prescribing patterns of providers and um, the prescriptions that are received by patients. Purpose is to enhance prevention, to promote early detection and prevention of drug abuse, and also to prevent diversion and to allow uh, enforcement of current laws. We collect, or the database collects information on schedules two through five, including such information, and you have a handout on this, as the prescriber date, uh, prescriber and the date written, and the date dispensed, the dispensing pharmacy, who the patient is, uh, where it's dispensed, the drug information, the quality, the strength, the Rx number, whether it's new or refill, and how many days the prescription should be for. Some statements in, in for our information or for our use, Vermont also lists the method of payment, which is interesting, particularly if it were cash, um, in terms of diversion or um, some sort of uh, not kosher use. These are, these are the links to the different uh, databases. I don't know if you can see this. I hope you can. If not, you should have a handout. This is an example um, of, and you'll notice on this example, um, this particular patient received an oxycodone prescription on March 6th of 168 tablets, which is supposed to be 28 days. It lists the prescriber, who's Catherine Coop, NP. It was written on the 6th. It's got the number on here. It's a new prescription. It lists the pharmacy, and it states that it's prescribed in New Hampshire. Sorry about that. You can glean a lot of information from this. Um, if, if a patient is getting multiple prescriptions from multiple providers, going to multiple pharmacies, maybe getting smaller amounts in between their larger prescriptions, it can give you a lot of really interesting information. In addition to that, uh, it allows the state health department and the boards of pharmacy and medicine and nursing to identify patterns of prescribing of certain providers. And any state usually also allows you to access the adjacent states according to, so for our, for our purposes, we get um, Vermont, uh, Maine, Massachusetts. Um, I think we get Connecticut, New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey, but some states only get the states that border them exactly. Um, in New Hampshire and Vermont, RX Sentry is the program that's used. That's the company that runs the PDMP. You can do uh, uh, queries for, from adjacent states, but for example, if you had a patient that maybe came from Colorado, you can't do that directly. You'd have to go to the Colorado State uh, PDMP. You can do this yourself, or you can delegate other people to do it. 
Um, you need to consult the PDMP in Vermont at least once a year. Anytime you're prescribing opiates for more than 90 days, and the first time you prescribe any scheduled two through four opiate for chronic pain. You also need to do it if you're writing a replacement prescription for a lost uh, prescription. And when you do that, you have to mark replacement on the, um, on the prescription and in the medical record. In New Hampshire, the roles mean that you have to, um, either you or the delegate have query the prescription monitoring program for any controlled substance dispensed to a patient or prior to initial prescription, and then periodically and at least twice a year afterwards, except if you're uh, in a healthcare setting like a hospital. Um, for some reason, the program isn't functioning. Uh, if you're in a busy emergency department and accessing the PDMP would prevent uh, timely care. Uh, and if those, any of those things happen, you need to document that in the medical record. So that's pretty straightforward, and I'm going to go to opiate risk tools. Oops. Oh, good, it came up that way. Okay. So this is an example. Um, I don't. Did we make a copy of this, Bridget? Okay. So this is an example of the list of all the different um, ORT or opiate risk assessment tools. Um, if you're interested, we're happy to provide this information. I'm going to go into detail on several of these, but this is a risk a list of most of them. The ones um, that are most commonly used, first of all, the o ORT or opiate risk tool, that's the one we use a lot. It's um, usually administered by the provider or the patient can fill it online um, on a tablet or a piece of paper. Another one is the SOAR, which is screener and opiate risk tool for patients with pain revised. It's the second um, iteration of a tool. The DIER, which is Diagnosed Intractability Risk and Efficacy, and the SISAP, which is Screening Instrument for Substance Abuse Potential. Most of these are pretty good. They last, lack cross-validation studies, and some are only validated for chronic pain, and some are only validated for use in primary care. They're used as the tools that we have in, in an imperfect world to kind of try to as ascertain if a person has a risk for abuse of their substances. Um, the ORT, which is the first one I'm going to talk about, is very brief. It's five items. It takes less than a minute, uh, one minute to administer, and the target population is adults. A low score or low risk patient is a patient with a score of zero to three. A moderate risk is a score of four to seven, and a high risk patient is over eight. And this is what it looks like. So you can see, for example, if you have a family history of substance abuse, and you're a female, and you and the substance used is prescription drugs, you get a score of four right out right away. And you add up all of these scores at the end, and that's how you get your summary. So it's pretty quick and easy. The soap bar um, takes about five minutes to administer and score. It's got 24 items. It can either be self-report, observation, or administered by a health care professional. This one is copyrighted. I'm not sure if the ORT is or not, actually. These are some of the questions um, you can see there. For example, um, a lot. Of, how often do you have mood swings? Um, and the scores go from never to seldom to sometimes often or very often. And you get uh, scores based added up based on that, on how the patient responds. Um, the dire score. I'm sorry. You, the next. I'll show you the next slide. It's not ex excellent. It's kind of blurred. So I'll, I'll um, read it off to you a little bit. 
The, uh, this was designed for primary care use. It's very easy to administer and score in under two minutes. It's used to predict suitability for opiate use for non-cancerous pain. And scores, the scores range from one to three in each category. And a score, you add up the score of each category and that's your final score and a score above 14, this is the opposite, a higher score is better, suggests a better in, if you want opiates, suggests a uh, suitability, higher suitability for opiate therapy. And this is, I'm sorry this is so blurry, but uh, the first is a factor is diagnosis. So number one, for example, is a benign chronic condition with minimal objective findings. Number two is a slowly progressive condition with concordant or moderate pain or fixed condition with moderate objective findings. Number three is an advanced condition with concordant or severe pain and objective findings. For example, severe ischemic vascular disease, advanced neuropathy, or spinal stenosis. And the, the, the next category is intractability, what kinds of things have been tried in the past and have been helpful. The risk is the total of those two categories together. This, the third category is psychological, um, chemical health, reliability, social support, and the efficacy score. So you add those all together, and depending on how the patient uh, scores, it gives you an idea of whether or not they're suitable to receive opiates or not. The SIS app is another tool. It's based on, it's a self-report tool based on the alcohol literature. It assesses patients with a substance abuse history who are at high risk for abuse or dependency. It's also designed for primary care. It takes less than one minute to score. There are five items, excuse me, and but it's not validated in pain patients. Oh, yes, there's the SIS app score about substance abuse. Um, I think you can see that, I'll give you a chance to look at that. All of these, the thing you have to remember is they're used to give you an idea of whether a person's suitable or not, but they're not uh, an absolute yes or no. That's clinical judgment. This is an example of a patient who uh, had uh, a high ORT score. This is a patient who had come to me. Uh, she had been a patient at another hospital locally and was being prescribed high doses of opiates and had a was basically fired from the program because she had a um, discrepancy in her pill count. Um, and I believe that was all it was. So she came to see uh, primary care here. Primary care here didn't really want to prescribe for her, so they sent her to us, and I saw her. And as you can see, she had a family, or she had a family history of alcohol abuse, a personal history of illegal drug use, um, she was under 45, so she got a score for that. She had a history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse, a history of psychological disease such as ADD, OCD, bipolar, and also depression. So she had a pretty, she had a really high score of 12. So she is somebody that, in addition to looking at the rest of her chart, um, she had been pretty non. Um, compliant with other treatments. She wasn't really interested in doing therapy. She wasn't really interested in injections. She really just wanted opiates. So she was somebody I actually chose not to prescribe. And when I explained to her why, she said, well, I guess I'd answer those questions differently then, wouldn't I? And that's an interesting point because these tools are tools. And people aren't familiar with them. And so once patients become more and more familiar with them, they may change their answers because they're savvy about what it is that you're looking for. Some other soft signs that I always think about are somebody who comes in and they're allergic to everything. 
all NSAIDs, all non-opiates, they only have one drug that they can take or only one that helps them. Um, they have a history of incarceration. They have a history of DUI. They associate with known substance users. Uh, they just moved to the area, and of course, their prior prescriber is in a small, obscure clinic, and they haven't seen them, and maybe they don't have a telephone or a fax machine, or they have no information on their opiates. They're hard to get a hold of. Um, going back to the PDMP, they've had multiple providers or multiple pharmacies noted. You can't get records from their prior prescribers. Um, another soft sign is how many voicemail messages, how many telephone calls to the clinic do they have. They've had a lost and stolen prescription. They use tobacco, or um, one of the biggest ones are so somebody who really isn't interested in anything but opiates. They don't really want to do any other treatment. They're not interested in physical therapy, etc. They may have, they may, they, it's not to say they don't have real pain, but opiates are one tool, and, and if people aren't willing to use everything that they are offered, it's kind of a red flag. This particular patient is somebody who um, had an aneurysm and has been left with chronic head pain. Um, she was also seen by a local pain clinic and sent over um, because she had had an inconsistent pill count. And she had a re really reasonable explanation for why it, it wasn't uh, consistent. She had carried some on her person and forgot about them, and it, it was plausible. Um, <clears throat> then she came to primary care, who also sent her over to us, uh, citing that she had, was very resistant to doing anything. She didn't go out of her house. When she went to the local pain clinic, she only left her house 12 times a year to get her prescriptions, and that was it. Otherwise, she lived in the basement in the dark. Um, she reported 10 on a scale of 10 pain without any relief at all, even with her medicines, and was always complaining about how her pain wasn't relieved no matter what, but always wanted more. Um, on our first visit, we, we came up with a plan for uh, goal setting, um, and that meant that she basically had to her primary care provider wanted her to see a psychiatrist, and she had been resistant to do that. So one of the plans was that she would at least make an appointment before I saw her again, um, and that she would make an appointment to see the physical therapist. Turns out she canceled those appointments or had to reschedule them, but at least she did do them, and she is unscheduled to see them. And eventually, after about three visits, I discussed uh, cannabis with her. So that's my portion, and I'll let Bridget go. So my name is Bridget, and I'll be talking about urine drug testing to monitor opioid use. So um, urine drug tests can tell us whether the patient has recently taken the drug that you've prescribed, whether they may not have taken the drug in the recent past, and it will also show other controlled or illegal substances that, are, that they have taken recently. Um, there is a limitation that the dose of drug that the patient takes does not correlate with the um, amount of drug that is found in the urine, so you can't make any inferences about that. Um, so indications for urine drug testing are prior to initiating chronic opioid therapy. Um, so typically in our clinic, we don't prescribe on the first visit. We make a follow-up visit in about two to four weeks um, so that we can 
get the urine drug test results back and make an informed decision about whether the patient is an appropriate opioid candidate. And then once you have initiated chronic opioid therapy, um, the CDC recommends that you test the urine periodically and randomly, at least annually, depending on the patient's risk. So uh, there is some disagreement in how often to test the urine based on the patient risk, but uh, in the for the most part, low-risk patients, you should test every 6 to 12 months, but at least annually. Moderate risk every 3 to 6 months, and high risk every 1 to 3 months. The key point here is that the tests should be random. There shouldn't be a pattern to them. The patient shouldn't be able to predict when they're going to be tested. Um, and then lastly, urine drug testing should be done when aberrant behaviors are observed, and it, they should be collected at the time that the behavior is recognized. So prior to initiating chronic opioid therapy, it's important to have a discussion with the patient on the purpose of the urine drug test. This is a good time um, to discuss and emphasize that the drug tests are done uh, to make sure that the patient is being safe and that these drugs do need to be monitored for proper use. It's also a good time to discuss the potential risks and side effects associated with opioids. Um, you should also discuss what the intended results of the urine drug test should be so that the patient knows that, that the prescribed drug should be present if they're taking it every day and that they shouldn't have any other controlled substances that aren't prescribed to them or illegal substances present in the urine. Um, and then you should also tell them what the plan would be for handling unexpected results. So, you know, just so they know what the expectations are, whether it's more frequent urine testing, whether you would wean them off the opioids. Another thing to discuss at this point is um, whether if the urine comes back with alcohol or THC in it, because our tests here do test for those substances. Um, alcohol, obviously there's a safety risk if the patient's taking opioids and using alcohol. Uh, but also THC would be, there's not as much as a safety risk there, but it really is up to the provider and the clinic, and just so you set the expectation for the patient prior to, you know, collecting that first urine, and it comes back with THC, and then they said they didn't know that you weren't okay with that. Um, so when you collect the urine, you should always document the name of the drug that you're prescribing and ask the patient when they last took the, a dose prior to the test. Uh, this gives them an opportunity to report to you that maybe they haven't taken the, taken the drug for, you know, a couple of days because they ran out early, they overtook it, something happened. Uh, but it also acts as a confirmation if there is an unexpected result in the urine. You can go back and say, well, you know, you told me that you took it the morning before I collected your urine and it wasn't there, so something's going on. Um, and then the CDC recommends that if there are unintended results that come back on the initial screen, you should discuss these results with the patient before sending a confirmation test as a way to save money on confirmation testing if the patient does have a valid explanation. So, you know, maybe they say that they did run out early because they overtook or they admit to using an illegal substance that comes back on the screen. Um, I can tell you, 
our patients are pretty savvy, so we usually just send the confirmation right away. Um, and let's see. Uh, one thing to ask also that I didn't mention is if the patient is taking any herbal supplements or over-the-counter medications, because these can uh, create false positive results for the initial screen. Um, poppy seeds are the only thing that would make something positive in the confirmation, and that would be morphine would come back positive, and I actually just had this happen with a patient who wasn't prescribed morphine, and she had a low level, and it turned out she had eaten a few poppy seed muffins that her son brought from this great bakery. So I had to tell her that uh, she's not allowed to eat poppy seeds while I'm prescribing to her, and um, I'm collecting urines a little more frequently at this point. So when you get the results of the urine test back, you should always look for the presence of the prescribed drug and or its metabolites. Um, check to see if there's any unexpected, illegal, or controlled substances that the patient's not prescribed. And you may also get a result that says test canceled due to suspected specimen adulteration substitution, or invalid specimen. This raises concern for tampering or substituting the specimen, and essentially the test can't be run, so you don't really have any good information from it. So again, it's up to the provider at this point what to do, whether you call the patient in for another test or whether this is just one of a slew of aberrant behaviors and you think that maybe it's time to uh, wean them off their opioids. Um, a quickly review screening using the immunoassay technique. So immunoassay is not being used as much nowadays because it yields a high rate of false positives and false negatives. Um, but I did confirm with our lab that if you do you know, accidentally order an immunoassay screen, any positive results that come back on that screen will then automatically be sent for mass spectrometry confirmation. Um, so more often though, the screening itself is done through mass spectrometry, which is more reliable and valid. Um, so either way, there's a lot of different options for ordering the labs in our system, but no matter how you order it, at least the positive screening results will come back will be sent for um, confirmation. And then, like I said, more often than not, the screens are actually done through mass spectrometry. And our lab recommends that if a screen does come back for an inconsistency, so say the patient's being prescribed oxycodone, but the screen comes back positive for both oxycodone and morphine, then you would order a confirmation just for the morphine. Um, and, and lastly, the urine here is only kept for about two to four weeks, so it's really important to review your results as they come in um, so that you have time, if there is an inconsistency on the screen, to send a confirmation for that test while the urine is still here, the initial urine is still here. So this is just a chart on um, the opioids and the drug detection times in the urine. The majority of opioids are detected for about three days following the last dose. 
The exception is the metabolite of heroin, which is 6-MAM, and that can only be detected for about eight hours following heroin use. However, heavy use of heroin does cause a very high concentration of morphine in the urine, so that would be concerning, especially if the patient was not prescribed morphine and they had a high level. These are charts of the different opioids and their metabolites. And these charts are pulled off of the Mayo Clinic uh, website if you need to look at them. Um, so the, I'll go over examples of this, but one thing to note is that the examples that we, or the, the results that we get from EDH are actually really helpful in um, determining whether the the metabolites that are present are actually consistent with the opioid that's prescribed, and I'll show you some examples here. <clears throat> so this is really little, but if you picked up some of the papers in the front, then you'll have this in front of you. Um, so for this example, up top we see that there's a presumptive positive for benzodiazepines and THC. And then as we go down through the screen for opioids, we see that there is the presence of oxycodone, noroxycodone, oxymorphone, 3-beta-glucuronide, and noroxymorphone. They're all positive. So then if you look at the bottom of the yellow box under opioid interpretation, it states that the test detected the presence of oxycodone and several metabolites listed. So that's just validating that all these metabolites that you see are actually consistent with the oxycodone that the patient's prescribed, so this is a consistent urine. Um, and then for the benzodiazepines, it actually breaks out each benzodiazepine in the confirmation, so you can ensure that the, the benzodiazepine that's present in the urine is the same one that is prescribed to your patient if your patient's prescribed that. Um, and this patient also had a positive THC, which was also confirmed. And then this next example, in the opioid screen, we see that codeine, 6-beta-glucuronide, morphine, morphine, 6-beta-glucuronide, hydromorphone, hydromorphone, 6-beta-glucuronide are all detected. Uh, this patient was prescribed high doses of morphine only. So when we look at the opioid interpretation, it says that it, the test detected the presence of morphine in its metabolite, so that's consistent. And then it says that it also detected codeine, which can be a minor impurity of morphine, but you also may suspect that the patient has used codeine. I had no reason to suspect that the patient had used codeine, so um, codeine is also consistent in this case. But then it says that the test also detected the presence of hydromorphone. So you've got codeine, morphine, and hydromorphone present. Codeine and morphine we know are consistent, but we're wondering why are they saying that the patient may have used hydromorphone. Well, if we go back to the actual drug metabolites chart here, you can see that hydromorphone is actually a minor metabolite of morphine, especially at really high doses. So actually this urine turns out to be consistent with the opioid that's prescribed. This just shows how tricky it can be to uh, decipher these tests, and so you should really use combination of resources to make sure that 
um, that the results are consistent, especially if you're worried about them not being consistent. However, this patient did have a presumptive positive for cocaine, and it was sent for confirmation, and they did have the metabolite of cocaine, so it turns out it wasn't a consistent urine after all. And then lastly, this example shows that there is the presence of oxycodone, noroxycodone, and noroxymorphone. Uh, and tramadol. So this patient was only prescribed oxycodone, and so the tramadol was sent for a confirmation, and it actually came back negative. So this just validates that the confirmation testing is um, valuable. So the take-home, I think, is just to use urine drug testing, uh, use it randomly. It is a valuable tool. There was a study, uh, a paper that was published in 2003 that Dr. Fanchula was a co-author on, and it showed, it was um, comparing in the chronic opioid population um, patients' aberrant behaviors, urine drug testing, and then a combination of the two. And when they were only monitoring for aberrant behaviors, they would have missed 49% of opioid misuse that was found just on urine alone. And when they were, um, they were monitoring just the urines and disregarding the, the, or, you know, they didn't see any aberrant behaviors, 32% of the patients had a problem with misuse. And then the patients with um, urine drug tests that were, that were inconsistent and aberrant behaviors only made up 19% of that population. So it shows that, you know, you could have this patient that you think is great and their urine may come back inconsistent, or you could have a patient with an inconsistent or with a consistent urine, but they're showing aberrant behavior. So you really have to use all the tools together to um, find the patients that are misusing or having a problem with their opioids. So I'm Susan DeStacio, and we're going to talk about aberrant behaviors. So regardless of risk, all patients should be monitored regularly and reassessed so that you can make alterations in their treatment plan. And usually we're looking at what is called the four A's, analgesia, activities of daily living, adverse events, aberrant drug-related behaviors, and some people will add a fifth, affect. So what are aberrant drug-related behaviors? These are behaviors that are outside of the boundaries of the agreed-upon treatment plan, which is established early in the provider and patient relationship. Often that is the opioid agreement. And um, if someone displays these aberrant behaviors, it could be indicative of opioid substance use disorder, abuse, or misuse of their medication. It could also perhaps be a sign that their pain is not being well-managed. So when you look through the literature, there are some behaviors that are less likely to be predictive of abuse or misuse, such as aggressive complaining about the need for more medication, drug hoarding during periods when they have less symptoms, requesting specific medications, 
unsanctioned dose escalation or noncompliance with therapy on one or two occasions, unapproved use of medication to treat another symptom, reporting psychic effects not intended by the clinician, or a resistance to change in therapy associated with toler tolerable adverse effects, expression of anxiety related to return of severe symptoms. An example of this is a patient of mine who um, ran out of her medications early because she took a few extra oxycodone when she was shoveling, and then her wrists were really bothering her, but I was treating her back pain. Um, so she had a warning about that, and it was a one-time incident. And then there are behaviors that are more likely to be predictive of abuse. And these are things such as selling prescription medications or prescription forgery, stealing or borrowing medications from others, injecting oral formulations, obtaining prescription medications from non-medical sources, concurrent abuse of alcohol or illicit drugs, multiple dose escalations or non-compliance with therapies despite warnings, multiple episodes of prescription loss, repeatedly seeking prescriptions from other clinicians or the emergency room without informing the prescriber or after a warning to stop doing that. Evidence of deterioration in their ability to function, such as work, family, or socially that appear to be related to medication. Certainly some uh, patients can have comorbidities and that may uh, cause some of these uh, symptoms. Or repeated resistance to changes in therapy despite clear evidence of adverse physical or psychological effects from the medication. And then uh, there have been some traits that have been identified. Uh, these are more objective. Uh, deteriorating physical appearance and hygiene. Appears intoxicated, appears sedated or confused expresses worry about addiction, exhibits lack of interest in rehabilitation or self-management, misuses alcohol or illicit drugs, arrested by the police, victim of abuse, increasing negative moods. So several tools have been developed for formal assessment of the patient's risk. These tools don't predict a patient who may have a problem in the future. However, um, the tools that we have currently are lack of being well-tested, uh, not as reliable, and they're not very easy to administer. Also in the studies, the definition of aberrant drug-related behaviors, it has not been standardized across studies. Um, as many of these tools don't account for the seriousness of the identified behaviors. The psychometric properties are weak. Uh, and many of the studies have methodological shortcomings. So I'll discuss a few uh, tools that are currently being used. COM is a current opioid misuse measure. It's a patient self-report. So you can see right there, again, if you're asking the patient to tell you, you're relying on them being honest. And they're, you know, you're prescribing opioids for them, and they're afraid if they tell you something that you're going to stop prescribing. So this is a 17-item questionnaire. The cutoff is seven or greater. Um, it is uh, not very specific or sensitive to what you're measuring, and there's fair to poor evidence for its use. There's the PADT. This is a pain assessment and documentation tool. This is really a charting tool that's based on those four A's, and it allows the clinician to track behaviors over time. 
Each individual question has been studied for reliability and validity, but it lacks the ability to really predict whether this is someone that's abusing or misusing. This is an example of the calm. I just did one page. You can see it's in the past 30 days. How often have you had trouble thinking clearly or had memory problems? And then they check off never up to very often. Um, in the past 30 days, how often have people complained that you're not completing tasks such as going to class or doing work? And probably the most commonly used is the addiction behavior checklist. This is the one that most of us use in the chronic pain clinic. It's 20 items. Cutoff is three or greater. Um, it is completed by the provider. It's a little bit higher in terms of being specific and sensitive. Uh, what's nice about this tool is that it's a mixture of patient report, but also what the provider observes in the patient during the visit, such as being confused um, or um, that they're not meeting their goals, things like that. So once you've identified that your patient is exhibiting some of these behaviors and scoring higher on, on this testing, uh, what do you do? So the provider can choose to continue opioid therapy, but may decide that they're going to do more intensive monitoring. You have the right to say to your patient, you need to come every week for a weekly prescription and a urine drug test. Um, so you may want to do those things more, uh, more often. Uh, you may want to require that the patient go to counseling or have an evaluation. But if you decide to continue opioids, despite the fact they've had some of these behave documented behaviors, you need a very clear, well-documented plan on how you're going to monitor them, when are you going to stop the opioids, uh, what are you using for your measures. You may also want to involve consultants, pain management uh, specialists, addiction medicine specialists, maybe a psychiatrist. And it may be appropriate to discontinue opioids if the risks outweigh the benefit. But it's important to distinguish between discontinuing opioids and discontinuing pain management. So we will often say to a patient, at this point we feel the opioids are not in your benefit and we're going to taper you off them. However, I will continue to see you and we will work on non-opioid therapy. We will work with other medications, we will work with um, a psychologist and help you with cognitive behavioral therapy, we'll do physical rehabilitation, but we're not stopping pain management, we're, we're stopping one aspect of it. So I have a case study. This is a 41-year-old female. Uh, her care was assumed from a previous pain clinic provider that left uh, that practice. This happens often, especially in primary care, when patients change providers and suddenly you're faced with a new uh, patient. Uh, she had a motor vehicle accident in 2007 with thoracic fractures. She had lived in several other states. And as Colleen mentioned, sometimes it can be very difficult to figure out what happened in those other states. But at some point, she was on methadone 80 milligrams a day uh, for her pain management. She was seen in the Dartmouth Spine Center, and MRI confirmed fractures, uh, as well as a central disc herniation in her thoracic spine. And the previous provider set up the plan to be oxycodone 10 milligrams three times a day, try some spinal injections, stop smoking, physical therapy, and a neurosurgical consult to see if she was a surgical candidate. 
Her urine test at, at that visit was uh, consistent. She was not on opioids at that point. She signed her agreement, and her ORT score, her risk score was three, low. And that was because she did have a history of depression, and she was under age 45. So the new provider picked her up, saw her in November. She uh, was doing physical therapy. She had an injection, but it didn't really help her back pain. She had missed her appointment. She was really due at the end of October. She explained that she doesn't drive. She relies on a transport service to bring her. And at the last minute, her babysitter canceled, and the transport service would not allow her to bring her one-year-old uh, with them. Um, she had decreased her smoking uh, from one and a half packages per day down to four cigarettes a day. Uh, her urine was done at that visit. It was consistent. Uh, there was no oxycodone in there because she had explained it had been two weeks since she took her previous dose. So the provider decided she, you know, this was first time, missed appointment, had a logical explanation. She was following through with all the plans. So the next visit in December, she was going to physical therapy. Her dad was in the hospital. He had had some cardiac issues. But she had not taken her oxycodone for a few days, and she reported that her house was broken into. Uh, in her haste to leave the house to see her father in the hospital, she had left her oxycodone pills out of the safe. She forgot to turn her alarm on in the house, and she brought with her a card, an official card, with a case number and a um, uh, officer, police officer number from her town. So she had reported this loss. So what would you do? You were the provider. Do you think you'd continue to prescribe? Yeah, she's meeting her goals. Sounds logical. Okay, um, so in January she's seen, and um, she was missed an appointment again. She was out of state. Uh, she was at her husband's grandfather's funeral. This time she tapered out her medication so she wouldn't run out. She saved the last one. She took one the night before. Again, she's working with physical therapy. She's decided to go back to school. She's on Shantex, and she's down to three cigarettes a day. Um, so at this point, I see um, are you thinking you'd still prescribe for her? Okay. So um, the provider voices concern with her and says, look, you know, you've missed a couple appointments. Uh, your meds were stolen. This is beginning to not look very good. You're meeting all your goals. I want to be able to keep this going for you. And kind of gives her a warning about this. So she comes back in February. She's on time. She's saving money for college and for her payment of her house. She's talking about her core strength is really getting better with physical therapy. A urine test is done. Her last dose was this morning, and it's consistent. So one thing to notice is that she's low risk. So technically, you could be doing her urine test twice a year. But because of these concerning behaviors, the provider decided to do testing more frequently, but not every visit. So it really should be random. Um, So in March, uh, she comes in and she tells you that uh, her husband threw out all her oxycodone pills. He's frustrated with her. She's limited in her activities. He didn't think they were helping. She did not call for an early refill. She states, I know you might not prescribe for me. 
Uh, she'd been without them for three weeks. She's talked it over with her husband. They've made up. He feels sorry for what he did. Provider asks her if she feels safe at home, and she states, yes, she's safe. Going to continue to prescribe for her? So now, yeah, I, hear, I see thumbs down and a lot of no's. So in this case, the provider decided to continue, uh, felt that she was meeting her goals, but warned her no more concerning behaviors. Uh, so the next month, she comes in. She started a part-time job. She's working 15 to, hour, 15 to 20 hours a week. The opioids are helping her stand uh, for long periods of time in her new job. She started volunteering. Uh, urine test is done. She states her last dose was at 1230 today, and they begin a discussion of cannabis. So her urine comes back, and it has no oxycodone in it and no metabolites. So if you decided to prescribe, what would you do now? She told you she took it that morning, and she's been taking it three times a day. Confirmation test. Confirmation test. So it was confirmed, no oxycodone, no metabolites. Nothing else, no, no illegal drugs. I heard something. No, she's selling them. So this provider called the patient and said, I can no longer prescribe for you. And the patient stated, my husband's been using my oxycodone, he's using heroin, I kicked him out of the house, I feel terrible, I felt terrible in all these visits, I'm so relieved you're not going to prescribe for me anymore. Um, and, and this provider did say, I'm, you know, I'm willing to see you back, but opioids will not be part of the plan, and did give her some information about substance counseling, abuse counseling. Okay. I think it's, um, I think it's worthwhile to point out. I mean, is this all? Is this some of this sort of like hypothetical, or is this all actual? This is an actual patient, but right. details changed a little bit. Like, okay. I think what you can say is, is that the earlier inconsistent behaviors predicted the later inconsistent behaviors. I think it's very common to see that. And I think that the end point of this story is, is that all of the excuses that you were giving all along the way were false and not correct. So I think that, um, you know, obviously in the end we get the true story, but this has been going on for, this has been a, a basically a major diversion for a six month period that I think probably could have been predicted uh, based on her earlier, some of her earlier behaviors. So I think our threshold for um, for discontinuing when things look inconsistent doesn't necessarily have to be that high. I think this is a, a, a particularly high threshold for proving the patients are guilty when I think simply having clinician discomfort with the situation is really sufficient to, to, um, to avoid situations of aversion a lot of times. I think in this case, um, this is a case where the patient is meeting all the functional goals and improving, and um, I, it may have been easier if this was a patient who refused to go to physical therapy and didn't stop smoking and wasn't meeting goals, and I think that's where um, some of this happened. So in summary, it's um, challenging to determine which patients are likely to or are currently misusing or abusing their medications or diverting them. 
Um, and clinicians should adopt universal precautions. The idea that a patient, any patient in pain, can misuse or abuse their medications, the same as any patient having their blood drawn could possibly have an HIV infection. And that by treating everyone with the same screening, the same administrative procedures helps remove bias. But as Bridget said, it's really important to have a discussion with the patient about why we're doing these tests and why we're asking these questions. Um, I have heard from patients that they feel like they're being treated like a criminal, uh, that uh, we don't trust them, we don't like them, um, they, they have to be asked these questions because of all the heroin addicts, and they're not one. So, you know, the more that we can really talk to them about why we're doing this, but that we do this for all patients. Doesn't matter your age, your gender, your history, all patients are treated equally. And that there are studies that are showing um, that there's a tendency for providers to under-assess patients' risk for misuse, even if they have evidence that the patient has aberrant behavior and has illicit drugs in their urine. And there are times that patients are referred to us and we go back and we look at their previous urine tests and there's cocaine in there. Or, or some other medication or lack of their prescribed medication, and that's never been addressed. Uh, so why that's important is that it's, a, it's appropriate to use objective measures and tools when evaluating risk in patients. And so today we've talked about risk assessment, using the PDMP, using urine drug testing, um, and assessing for aberrant behaviors in order to try to identify who's at risk and who may be misusing or abusing their medications. And so now we'll open this to questions. Questions, comments? Yes? Just in that last uh, case study that you presented, um, and I, I wasn't paying close enough attention to follow all the screening tools, but it makes me wonder if it would work well if anybody in your household had a history of SUDs or treatment, or you know what I'm saying? Because that seems to be relevant in this case. That. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so the question was around uh, the case study, and if uh, the question should there be a question about other uh, people in the household potentially having a substance abuse history or currently uh, misusing? Uh, do you know, Colleen, when you were doing uh, for risk? Whether that was a question, I haven't seen that. It's in the family history, but I haven't seen anything about whether someone else that you live with is misusing. Just, just in the. Consent um, contract with the patient keep, stating keep not sharing your yes. medications with mm -hmm. other family members. Yeah. Right. So the point was so I'm repeating this because this is being recorded, but the point is that um, it is part of the agreement that they not share their medication uh, or give it to other people in the family or other people in the community, as well as when we address keeping it uh, safe and locked, the idea uh, is to keep it away from other family members as well. 
Other questions? So, so would you, cons would you uh, in, the, in the last case study, you, were, you had talked to, the person had talked to the person about medical cannabis prior to the episode that sort of broke the camel's back. Would you still consider treating that patient with cannabis after the inconsistent urine toxicology? So um, I would consider it. Um, I think I would uh, have her come back and see her and, and re-talk about goals, find out what's going on at home. I would uh, see her more often if I signed for cannabis and um, more frequent urine testing. Any other questions, concerns? So we're always available, any of us, any of the providers in the pain clinic, anybody who has questions or concerns or wants to run a case by us, or um, the lab is great. We constantly call the lab to ask about, can you just clarify this urine testing result on us? Am I interpreting this correctly? We call them all the time and get clarification, so I, I guess the encouragement is to really use your resources. Thank you.